uh, we are magical creatures. <laughs> there is wonder here, right? And how we've we've survived every day. Um, so I, I would say that you know, reproductive justice is spell casting, is vision casting, is a promise for mm. what we're going to do and how we're going to live within our lifetime. You know, it, I think that there's a lot of people, you know, we think this is aspirational. It's like, no, we're doing it now. You can't get back on to make yourself comfortable because this is the South Has the Answers. I'm your host, Luna Malbro. Here we get to laugh with laugh. That's short for Louisiana Abortion Fund. And we get to kiki with the thought leaders, organizers, and champions of a reproductive justice movement that includes liberation for all of us. Today, you have the pleasure of hearing from AJ Haynes, a queer, Black, and Filipina singer, songwriter, educator, and reproductive freedom advocate from Louisiana. She's the leader of the genre-expansive soul power band, Serotones, which has garnered national and international acclaim. She's the board chair of the Louisiana Abortion Fund and has over a decade of experience in abortion care. She believes art is part of collective community care and that our bodies are sites for liberation and joy. AJ joined us from her southern cottage, so you might hear some sounds of hummingbirds buzzing around and a tambourine-like rattling. We never quite figured out what it was, but let's chalk it up to AJ being incredibly musical all the time. I'm so excited to personally have this conversation. I'm so excited for people to hear this conversation because I'm in these I'm in these equitable streets. <laughs> where like folks are like, I'm this expert or I'm this, but I think you're someone who embodies like the world we're trying to build in a way that I rarely see. And oh. it's so, yeah, it's so like, I just, I see you walking in alignment and I don't know, it's inspiring. So I, <laughs> that's so, I needed to hear that because I have, I do struggle with a lot of like self-doubt and I think that comes from you know like we're making things that we haven't seen before right like the path that I've created I don't see a lot of other people doing a lot of things that I'm doing so <laughs> the affirmations are really really necessary actually like I need them you know I know that I'm walking in alignment with spirit you know like I know that that's I know I'm on the right track but it's always really uh heartening to have those reminders that like okay you are doing it and people see it like and they're inspired to like do their own version of this you know 100 <laughs> percent so yeah let's get into that because i and i hear you on affirmation i'm you know i think we all need it and especially doing the work that we do um you know we're talking about this, this whole podcast is centered in Louisiana abortion funds work and the work of mutual aid and reproductive justice. And we need affirmations in this work. So like, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, thinking about like the South and how we, you know, how we tend to communicate, at least, you know, the, the places that I grew up, it's a lot of, it's a call and response thing. It's like, do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. You know, like, do we see me? I see you, you know? Um, and I don't know if that's 
what other people's experiences elsewhere. But even, you know, just walking in the street, people wave at you, you know, it's like, I acknowledge you, you exist. (laughs) I see you, you exist. Yeah. That being at the end of the day, do you see me? (laughs) You see me. I am present. I get, you know, it's interesting is I get so used to that. So I just be waving to people sometimes, like when I'm not necessarily. <laughs> if someone's in my like view, I'm like, okay, what's up? You know, uh, it's just, it's just funny to think of like how the mannerisms like reflect, uh, yeah, our mannerisms and our habits like reflect like the ethos, even if we haven't had like the language for it necessarily, it hasn't been like, academized or whatever you know I just made that word up no no I I feel you and I think that there there's a lot of stuff I think about this a lot because you travel a lot I travel a lot I see from from city to city how people move and operate and just coming back from New Orleans for the black party I was I think it was it was so visceral this time the way I couldn't go anywhere without someone being like where are you from (laughs) (laughs) like can I get this printed at FedEx Kinko (laughs) (laughs) gotta tell me what your last name is oh Malbro I know some Malbros (laughs) I love it I love it too well yes let's let's dive into you so help like for new folks, for people who are just kind of getting to know you or being exposed to you or hearing you for the first time, can you share a little bit about who you are? Like, what's what are the worlds you inhabit? I think is the question that came up for me when I thought about like how to ask you to describe yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, in thinking about um, coming from the South, I was actually born in Japan. Um, and but I was but raised in Louisiana, um, and I think I'll leave first with like I'm a I'm always a child of the village. You know that's how I understand myself is kind of from this childlike state um, of inquiry, and that's how I like to move through the world. You know I definitely parent myself and take care of the things that I need to, but that keeping that that the perspective of a child of the village is really important to me because it gives me malleability. Um, and so with that, I am the lead singer of Sarah Tomes. That's my band. And um, I'm also the board chair for the Louisiana Abortion Fund. Pew, 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 pew. And I also, I just started working with a United Musicians and Allied Workers um, as their first staff person. So kind of helping shape um, that organization as well. Um, And what else do I do? I garden a lot whenever I'm home. I'm a plant bay, Um, I'm a feral plant bay. (laughs) And so I do, yeah, and I'm also um, the secretary of the Memphis chapter of the Recording Academy. Um, so those are my my titles. Yeah, those are, and moreover, those are like the worlds that I shift between. I think like, as you asked, like the way that you asked that makes so much sense because that's 
you know, definitely how I see myself is like slipping into one thing and like taking information from one place and then applying it to another, you know, and weaving it all around. That's so, I mean, so the world, like the worlds I see truly are like the worlds of like music and also like workers' rights, even within music and advocacy and the union of of music, which is really dope, Uh, like the union organizing aspect of music and also being an internationally acclaimed performer, singer, rock star, lead singer of a dope band. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, being the chairperson of Louisiana Abortion Fund. So in that whole world of uh, abortion access, abortion rights, and reproductive justice. That's, that's Those are seemingly worlds that I don't see a lot of people mm. being in between those two spaces. Um, do you think, you you kind of like, I, I have questions about this that we can get into later, but you already start to allude to how those different worlds might shape your perspective mm-hmm. in different spaces. But is there like an is there an antidote or a story that you can share that kind of highlights that, how those worlds, how sometimes you're like, oh, that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, catch the, mm-hmm. so uh, the last Recording Academy meeting that I attended, we were looking at, um, yeah, we were looking at incoming members and also looking at the composition of the board. And I, I think for with with good intention, there a lot of organizations have a reactionary. We want to hurry up and be diverse. Um, moment carried over from you know this this shift in not necessarily the black collective conscious, right? But like more awareness of what we experienced um, in twenty twenty and so forth. Um, and so everyone wants to hurry up and be diverse. <laughs> and the question was brought up, like, why don't we have more more women and and as members? Uh, and specifically thinking about the context of, you know, the Memphis chapter, which encompasses Louisiana, Mississippi, um, you know, the southern part of Tennessee, Memphis, Missouri. <laughs> and I was like, we've been out here trying to stay alive. <laughs> You know, like people are trying to kill us. We don't have human rights. Like, <laughs> fuck, I'm gonna sign up for a, an academy for it if I'm like, I can't afford child support to show up to, and uh, child care to show up to the meeting, right? Like, mm-hmm. that was a very real thing. So I was like, well, one, I actually said that at, during the meeting. I was, I think I was actually use some expletives too, because I'm unhinged apparently like I'm here you deal with me I love you um yeah and so I am working on um working on an initiative with some amazing staff folks um at the academy um hopefully spearheaded by uh the DEI branch to uh, provide child care stipends for for members as they attend events and stuff so like what's you know, what's one small way, you know, that a pretty major organization for the Recording Academy can can live the values and create the world they wants to see. Like if we want to see 
more women and we want to see more trans and non-binary folks right if we actually want this to represent the cultures and the people that are the culture bearers literal physical bearers of all this music that we love we need to create space for them and we need to give them resources without batting an eye and this this model of mutual aid and the way that we've structured it within a laugh is like gave me the framework for saying actually this is how you do this and you don't ask a bunch of questions like this is not charity you see that there is like structurally within the world these are the things that people are dealing with what can you do with your resources to help out and alleviate the burden you're not going to fix it because i think that's where the problem is people are like let's fix it all you can't fix it what can you do with what you have to move in alignment with values, right? But don't be out here trying to fix everything with one thing that you can do. <laughs> do you know, fix it, you know, like just that one thing. So that was a moment of like, okay, these are my worlds merging. Because I, I did have a conversation with uh, one of the one of my the members of the academy. We were we actually met in Berlin. Uh, she's an incredible singer-songwriter from um, based in New Orleans, but we were both in Berlin for a festival, um, and I was like, "Hey, girl, hey!" Because I never actually got to see her and hang out whenever she's in New Orleans because she has kids. She's got like stuff to do, you know. Um, and I'm always, you know, if I have friends like I'm with, with children, I'm like, "I'll come to you." Like, we don't have to go out unless unless you want to break from the kids, but like, I'll show up and we can. You can wrangle them and we can kiki in between all that, you know, if you want. Um, but she was like, yeah, I, I haven't been present to the meetings because like, I I can't afford to, you know, as a single, not as a single working musician, but as a, as a working musician, like what I'm dealing with also is like a black mother musician. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I can't just be like passing off my kids all the time uh, without having some help, you know? Right. That is so radical too, because um, I think one thing that for me, like has been real, like what laugh has taught me too, is the power of mutual aid. Mm. Don't ask no questions. Just like people say they need it. They need it. And like, yeah, on mutual aid instead of charity as radical and thinking about it what also inspires me about that is like it's not waiting for someone else to like for the government to come around and realize that we have to provide people with child care and child support and child services and uh parental leave and all that like it's like it's like okay we can advocate for that but in the meantime what i'm gonna do is give you some money because <laughs> We ain't got all day. <laughs> we don't. And like, and also like we, when, you know, when people show you who they are and believe them, it's like, we have evidence of, of how the government <laughs> and how, you know, folks that they have been complicit in, in harming us. Right. So like, why, you, you know, I understand that there's navigating that relationship in order to push for advocacy so that we have the legislative protection, right? But like, also, we do live in an almost lawless place, right? Like, maybe I just think about that because I'd be in Louisiana, Mississippi, and I'm like, what are rules? <laughs> <laughs> 
like, ah, there are rules, but really there are repercussions. And I'm more worried about the repercussions than the rules. You know what I mean? Like, Ooh, are there rules? Are there repercussions? Let's talk, let's talk like, about that because I do want to get a little into, you know, how you grew up and like anything about growing up. I know you're born in Japan, but growing up in Louisiana, that, uh, has shaped your perspective. And I hear that being one of it, like the, what are rules? Well, yeah, like <laughs> anything else about we do that, you know? Uh, so I, I grew up in, in Columbia, Louisiana. That's why I spent my childhood and, um, and my early adolescence. Hi, little hummingbird. I know I got to refill that. I'm sorry, my bad. You're buzzing. Um, so I grew up in, you know, in Columbia, Louisiana, small, small village. Um, my mother, so my mother's from the Philippines, met my father in Japan whenever he was there, um, stationed in Yokosuka with the Navy. Then we moved to Shreveport, uh, not Shreveport, Columbia, Louisiana. And so, uh, you know, first initially, like my, my first impression of the world was that there are just a lot of different people you know, because I was on a naval base. So it was a very, I mean, very diverse group from what I remember. You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, in my infancy, it's like, this is diverse, but I was like, people look different and they all families just kind of are, you know. Um, and then coming to Columbia, um, you know, seeing my mom manage, you know, being an immigrant, moving to rural Louisiana, raising three black children you know, as a, as a Filipina woman, um, and how she was fiercely protective and, you know, in, in ways and vigilant, the vigilance that she had definitely shaped what I think of when it comes to reproductive justice, like what I'm, how I'm going to take care of, of these children and also like nurture them, um, and seeing the relationships that she had, like with my grandma and my great grandma, you know, um, was really, was really beautiful because, you know, we were just, there wasn't like a, we were able to find, I think between their cultures, they were able to find the points where like black culture and Filipino culture, like intersect and mirror each other, which is, there's a lot of similarities, you know? So from that point, I was like, okay, just find the points of where, where you can find commonality and then you figure it out from there, you know, um, when, when people are coming from different places, like what's the one thing we can like meet on. Um, but you know, my mother loved to garden, loved gardening. My great grandma has uh, had a massive, massive backyard. And I just remember growing up with like fig trees and like pecan trees and greens and um you know we would every summer would be uh spent playing in the in the yard you know don't come inside unless you want to shell peas and watch the as the world turns you know <laughs> yeah so, and and i remember i had this distinct memory of like us shelling a bunch of peas and then like a neighbor coming with some like fish you know like some white perch and like trading uh food in that way um 
and I, I feel like that's really my model for like, this is what mutual aid looks like. Here's like, here's what I got and here's what you have and meeting each other with dignity, right? And like respect and knowing that we depend on each other. You know what I mean? So like my country ass is like, oh yeah, this is great. We just feed each other and uh, and take care of each other, you know? And then moving from, we, we left Shreveport whenever I was going to high school. So I started high school in, in um, Shreveport. And it was a little bit of a shift going from like super rural, you know, to more of a city. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I, you know, my, my father is a recovering alcoholic and he's been sober for, oh my God, like decades now um like so i grew up in aa you know part of my understanding of the world is also from like that village that structure you know that accountability that like honesty um that authenticity because it you can't show up inauthentic to aa like you gotta tell your shit you know like you gotta you gotta get into it um which is might might not be the best model for everyone but i i really love you know, watching my dad transform um, within that community. And, you know, my dad used to like make big old plates of food for all the meetings. You know, we, we would always have like these huge, like industrial sized pans in <laughs> the kitchen. Um, and so like, I grew up with that in Shreveport as well. You know, my father worked with this nonprofit um, that had a a system of halfway houses that provided help for folks again like without question you know um and as judge like no nobody's judgment free you know what i mean like you always got a little judgment Mm -hmm. but but not making not having that impact how you treat someone and treat them with treating them with dignity um and, and so also in shreveport i was always a little weird kid you know i was very very studious um and this is something that was impressed on me by my mother and my grandma and great grandma you know um one of my first conversations about you know reproduction about kids and stuff was with my great grandma and she was like do whatever you want see the world get your education right get your education get your education um Mm -hmm. So that was always in the back of my head, like, okay, I got to have the tools, you know, to do whatever I want. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I was always very studious in high school, like, oh my God, nerd. Instead of eating lunch, I would like go hang out in the library and read poetry, Um, which in hindsight is like, that was definitely disordered eating. Pero, like, we're here. I'm alive still, you know. <laughs> I made it somehow. But, uh, you know, I would, I would do that. And then, like, I had friends that we used to put on, like, punk shows. And so, you know, uh, having those DIY spaces was the closest that I could feel to church that I grew up in Colombia, you know, where people have, like, assembled in a space that it's a little, you know, it's a little, it's a little janky, you know. And also, we're really proud of this, what we've created. Um, and we take care of each other. So that was, like, my introduction to, like, DIY scenes and, like, punk music. Um, 
and that's actually how I met my band members. Oh, wow. And high yeah. School? Yeah. And, and my senior year of high school going into college. Wow. Yeah. That was a wild time because I, <laughs> I was like going my freshman year of college and we'd be on campus and all these kids are like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and like, what should we do? And I'm like, let's go to the bottoms and go hang out at a punk show. <laughs> like I'm a drink of 40 in the alley with, you know, whoever. And I, I'm very, you know, this is how I know I got ancestors looking out on my ass because I was in some crazy places. Um, but the, but I, I was in crazy places and also I felt really safe. Like yeah. part of that is like the fearlessness that comes with your adolescence. But part of that is like I know this ragtag group of people, if something happens, like they well, got your back. They got my back, you know? Like so that's so that's how I met my band members. And in college we had a cup a cover band. Cause like, that's just the best way to make money as a band and, um, or was, you know, I don't quite know what it looks like now. And especially in Shreveport, there are a lot of casinos and stuff. So that's where we get most of our money. And that's how I paid for like my books and like fed myself. And one day we were asked to perform at a Christmas party at Hope Medical Group because the art director was friends with the owner of Hope. And the art director had let me put on um, happenings, these like experimental multimedia events on campus. And was like, she has a band, maybe she'll perform. And so that's actually how I got introduced to working in abortion care. So we played at this Christmas party for Hope Medical Group. And afterward I was hanging out with Robin Rothrock, the late owner and Kathleen um, and Steffi uh, and I was like, well, what do y'all do here? What happens here? She was like, we're, we're an abortion clinic, you know, like hope, hope that you would have known that before we got here. <laughs> I was like, okay, bet. You know, I hadn't really thought about abortion, honestly, other than when I was in this theater class and this professor did a very interesting poll in the classroom we were reading I forget the name of the text um basically dividing the room like if you're pro-abortion or anti-abortion and I remember distinctly in that moment I was like I'm in the middle because I don't think that anyone should be able to tell me what to do with my body period I don't understand either of y'all's arguments you know mm -hmm. and and that was you know flashing back to that conversation as I was talking with the owner of Hope, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, great. Do y'all need, uh, I need more money because I'm poor and I need a job. So do y'all have any job openings? <laughs> and it was great because I didn't have a car at the time and the clinic was right across the street from the college. So I could, you know, get off from class and go pick up some shifts um, as a patient advocate. And so that's where my journey began in abortion care is actually specifically tied to, to music. Um, so that kind of connects the dots. That's, that's amazing <laughs> dot connection. And like, I, I'm of this, I'm of this point in time in life where I used to think that I was living in different worlds. And now I'm like, it's all the same. 
It's all the same. It's all the same. <laughs> the same structures, the same people, people in. It's just people are, you people know. People being people. There's something about what you said, too, that were, that took me back to my original thoughts about abortion and, like, what I was thinking. Because, like, in that timeline, I was, like, placing myself or just, like, right. kind of being like, okay, you took me through your childhood. And I was, like, relating in some ways. And I remember thinking, because I, I grew up in a rural town, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I always tell people, like, I've been my friends have been getting pregnant since I was 13. Like I saw people, you know, getting pregnant around me since I was 13 and they would teach abstinence only education. And I'd be like, it's not working. And even (laughs) the conversations around like, should we have abortion? Should we not have abortion? I was like, if you don't want abortions, then wouldn't you get to the root of the issue, which is giving people access to, uh, you know, contraception, sex education, making sure like d- domestic violence situations or people are able to escape. I, like even as a kid, I was like, yeah. I don't understand this argument because it seems like if you are anti-abortion, like I could see how you would be like, oh, I don't, I don't think people should have abortions. But if you wanted to stop that, wouldn't you want to create more access for folks to to have the things that they need to lessen the amount of abortions that people made you know what I mean I was just like that's so that's what I originally thought I was like I just don't see this argument don't make sense to me make it make sense and this is like 13 year old me I'm like seems like this you know the teenage pregnancy <laughs> prevented and people would have gave out information and resources or at least some of these teenage pregnancies could have been prevented with yes resources <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's funny is so growing up within my family, the way that I was always taught about sex is like, I mean, we're actually from a really young age. My mom was very adamant about us using like correct anatomical language. It was just like, this is your vagina. You know, these are your breasts. It's not like any other type of name for it. And like, I understood like what sex looked like, like, from an encyclopedia it was very straightforward like this is what happens and this is what a pregnancy looks like um so the way that i was presented information about sex you know from just a purely factual level was like this is what it is and then i had the information of you know the messaging of well someone should respect your body and it and you should be in charge of how you feel you know like someone should make you feel good Mm -hmm. right like and it wasn't even there was no conversation of like losing virginity really because that wasn't I don't remember that language ever being used actually I didn't really hear that until I was in high school around other people and I was like what do you mean lose some guilt lose something makes no sense to me you know um and I was just I you know my my grandmother um, had a really, she had really difficult relationships with, with men. Um, and, you know, my, my dad's father was not around and nor were his uh, siblings' fathers around uh, at all. And yet, like, I, I never, I never saw my grandma bitter about it. She was like, well, I'm gonna do what I do. I'm gonna take care of these kids. And I got my people with me, you know, and the messaging she would always give me about men was like, 
they're kind of like it's fun it should be fun like your relationship should be um entertainment (laughs) and also they should fix things (laughs) you know it's like that's my framework is I should do whatever I want you know whenever I was really and my great-grandmother did put me on birth control she was like you about to get on this depo real fast um and in hindsight you know even though I was a little frustrated with like how that was done I'm so thankful that my 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 takeaway from that is agency, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't necessarily have the tools to explain to me what to expect, and neither did the doctor. I mean, this is my experience, and when I was working at Hope, like people don't explain how the birth control could affect you. They just gaslight your ass, and they're just like, "Well, do you want to get pregnant or no?" And I'm like, "I, I want to feel my body, and I want to feel, I want to in- at least have an understanding of what could happen," you know. Because uh, it wasn't necessarily explained to me like I wouldn't have a period and like what all that means. <laughs> so, yeah, being able to not only explain the contraception, but like sit with the complicated history of contraception, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And be like, okay, this is a tool. This is a tool. It might not be for your toolbox, you know? And the way this tool was made you know, not, not great, not great history. (laughs) So when your gut reacts, like gut reaction to an aversion to birth control, I'm like, okay, I can see where that comes from actually. Right. Because of who it's experimented on to get this. So how do we hold that and also use part of the tool as best for our autonomy as best we can for our autonomy, you know, 100%. And I think we're getting into the, like the crux of, what I'm so excited to talk about you with you, which is reproductive justice. And that as a framework. We're gonna take a break for a moment for two short messages, but I promise we'll be right back. In the South and need an abortion? Give Laugh a call at 844-44-ABORT. That's 844-442-2678. LAF provides compassionate, affirming support that honors and affirms the dignity of people seeking abortion care. This podcast is produced by Joy Channel. What is Joy Channel? A collection of creatives and change makers that work with organizations and communities towards liberation. We do that by creating content like this podcast or supporting organizations hands-on with training, consulting, experiences, and parties. We like to throw parties. To find out more, visit us at joychannel.org. Um, so could you just, what, I would love to hear your description or your definition of reproductive justice. Man, it's so, every time I try to do my own take on it, I'm like, but it's so good the way it is. Well, whatever, yeah. I know, I'm like, like the, the human right to parents, not parents, uh, and have families in safe and sustainable environments. It's like, God is so perfect. Like <laughs> everything you need, uh, do, you know, I'd say a, a riff on that would be like, do what you want to, you know, like do what you want to <laughs> on the corner. 
which is actually, it's funny is whenever I went to the bookstore, uh, whenever during the block party, Miss uh, Miss Jen sang that at me when I came in the door. I was, and I was obviously like a little distressed from, you know, just events be that way sometimes. And she was like, do what you wanna. And I was like, yes, Miss Jen, actually, that's it. That's it, right? Like, I get to self-determine. I get to do what I want. Um, do what you want to down in the corner. Like, I'm, I do that and I'm with my people, you know? So it's very community-centric. And this is what, even before I had, I remember when I found out about the term reproductive justice. And this was after, oh, Lord, this was, I didn't hear about the term reproductive justice until like was it 2019 2018 after I'd been doing it for almost two ten years right since 2008 <laughs> like what <laughs> okay um I remember being a little pissed because I found out from a white woman and I was like how you know about this no one told me you know after i've been working in a clinic <laughs> what this was i was excited and i was also like it's like so the language has been here this whole time and i haven't had it and it named my experience uh, uh to be fair it's also fairly early new from the 90s so i'm like okay not that long ago but long enough mm-hmm. um but you know, I love that the the making of the language came from like a group of people getting together and saying like, this is how we're gonna name ourselves, right? And there's such power in that. Um, and I honestly, I think about reproductive justice as like, okay, yes, it's a, it's a framework and it's also like, it's a vision. It's also, I think of it as spell casting, right? Because the language itself is poetry, is condensed and is a promise and that's what a spell is right it's like intention with um you know awareness of conditions and how you want to shape them and like visioning for the future um so i like to to be able to like weave between my understandings of like how we shape the world and part of that is magic like you know uh we are magical creatures <laughs> there is wonder here right and how we've we've survived every day um so i i would say that you know reproductive justice is spell casting is vision casting is a promise for mm-hmm. what we're going to do and how we're going to live within our lifetime you know it, i think that there's a lot of people you know we think this is aspirational it's like no we're doing it now Okay, well, we'll speak on it then. I what I love about that is like you're just like it's you're so like ethereal and like fairy like, and the the intensity in which you said that was like, but now though, but now though, playing these games though, I'm I'm about it. I'm not. It's not gonna be like for for somebody grandkids. I'm talking about for me. For me now, in real time. And that's what we've been doing with laugh. I'm like, okay, we're dealing with obviously like scary times, you know, uh, in the world. And also like, what can we do within our community? How can we make sure our people are taken care of, right? 
and that we're not replicating the harms that we're here to try to alleviate. And like, that's what it looks like in real time. It's not some faraway idea. Like whenever we had the photo shoot, you know, and Rose had her kid, maybe just running around, touching stuff, you know, I need this and being so adorable. And Chastity had her child there and they were able to like be their full selves, like to be mothers, also to be irritated with their children, also to be like glamorous and creative, you know? That's what reproductive justice is. It is happening in real time. It is not a faraway idea because we are cultivating these safe and sustainable environments you know, and as much as we can control, right? And like, that's the... Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think coming, coming into laugh, what I very quickly... What I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. But I was like, huh, I don't think I've seen this before was like, I don't think I understood as someone who, you know, I might have said the phrase reproductive rights before. Um, I think I knew I, I've heard of Sister Song. Like, I think I was like kind of familiar, but I think I didn't quite understand how different the vibe is between abortion rights and abortion like advocacy and folks are just like abortion and abortion and the reproductive justice like black led black you know women centered movement I don't think I I think all of those things were kind of the same to me before and then once I got connected to laugh I was like whoa it's a whole it feels very different to me to me but I'm curious to you like how do you see those two frameworks either, you know, being connected or uh, being similar or different or how do you, it just, especially with you being, have been doing like a, abortion work for over 15 years. Like, how do you see those iterations in the field kind of showing up in different ways? Mm. I, you know, I, I would say it first shows up in how people treat each other. You know, like, is this a very different, it's a different vibe, you know? Um, like, I feel like because we have reproductive justice as a container, as like a place to hold us, like we know that we're held here, right? And so I'm not about to go tit for tat on things with people. You know I mean? We're in the same space, you know, like, if there there is not an anxiety around conflict, you know, hmm. if there is a disagreement or if there is something that's just not quite sitting right with your spirit, you know, you can speak on it and we can work it out because we're held within this container, right? We're, it, you know, it's wild as I was watching uh, Lovecraft Country, um, which I just love. Oh my God, it's such a great series. And the last episode when they're in the uh, this this holding place that um, what was the the mother's name had created for for her family to be oh, safe from the um, I can the white see, witches. I can see her face, but I'm forgetting her name. Yes. Really. Uh, oh, I don't, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, but you know, she's talking about like this this space that she's created, this like fire you know, how she was able to shape her rage and her passions, you know, 
as a holder. And that's the way that I think about reproductive justice. It is like a cleansing fire, right? And it's and and this way that like you do I have to deal with myself, you know, like I have to deal with unlearning white supremacy, you know, in my own small ways every day because I'm held in this container, you know, that that cleanses me in that way. Um and so, yeah, it feels warm. That's the best metaphor that I can think of. It's like, this is the place where we're safe, you know, um, and also held accountable to each other. It's, it don't be the same way in a lot of white feminist spaces. It's not, you know, um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as good, right? Like it just doesn't. There's what I experienced was before, you know, a lot of tension, a lot of unspoken stuff, a lot of like understoods, but no knowing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, just this is just the way that it was. And this is just why we suffer. And burnout was not seen as like something to be avoided, but something that just like was the state of things. You know, and um, it, it just. Yeah. There, there's a sense of, it, how do I put this? And this is all happening in real time, right? Like I, we're figuring it out because we have this container, you know? I do think of this as like an experimental space in some ways, you know, like we get to try this and maybe that didn't work. Maybe we get to try something else. There's play here, um, there's creativity, right? And I think that's what, you know, invigorates me and keeps and sustains me, you know, is that I do get to be creative um, as um, as a leader and also as a community member, as a child of the village. Like, mm. I get to be like, whoop, that didn't work. Let's try again. <laughs> Let's do something else. Or maybe this did work, you know, and I feel like there is not that grace in white feminist spaces. There's not that, like, curiosity you know as i said there's a lot of this is understood but don't nobody know shit like mm. Mm. and too proud to admit that that they don't know you know uh there's a lot there's a lot that i said there in that but that it, that's it like people this is the way things have been but like don't interrogate why things are mm -hmm. that way mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that comes out to how people speak to each other. You know, like we in laugh, we do have a hierarchical, that word has been coming up a lot, hierarchical structure in a way that I think is healthy, in a way that like still distributes power and agency and honors like this can be a matriarchy, actually. That Those have existed before and they were, you know, and uh, whatever the term would be for like a queer matriarchy, you know, like when we think about, um, I'm thinking specifically about what I just learned about um, my uh, Filipino heritage. So um, before the Spanish colonizers came, some of the most powerful people within the uh, the Filipino villages or pre-colonial uh, villages were the Babylon. And the Babylon were, were fairly genderqueer, but femme of center leaders that were healers, 
uh, visionaries, medicine workers, um, consultants for for strategy, you know? And I'm like, this makes sense. This resonates with me. There was still hierarchy and structure within these indigenous groups, but power was distributed in such a way and knowledge was distributed in such a way that everyone could show up with agency. Like, we can replicate that. It's been done, but people tried to erase it. You know, the Spanish colonizers were so fearful of the Babylon that um, the ones that they could could catch, could uh, find, were, you know, trigger warning, violence, um, were killed and cut up and their bodies fed to crocodiles, right? Mm-hmm. That's the fear. That is how deep the fear is, the control. And that thread is 100% within white feminism, right? Within like this need to control and contain something, right? But uh, there's this book that I'm reading that's an anthology called From the Bellies of Crocodiles, you know? And there's a thread here with like Louisiana and alligators. I'm like, why does this feel so good and familiar? Because I'm like you know, we are ancient creatures that have this knowledge that are in alignment with our lineages. And like, we have that adaptability, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, I so want a laugh t-shirt with an alligator, but that would be so cheesy and no one else would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. I have to get it past Chastity. Chastity will call out my cheesiness. I love it. <laughs> be like, I don't know about that. And I'm like, you're probably right, but it could be really cute and kitschy. <laughs> she, I, she liked live, live, laugh, liberate, which I love it. It was, it's so corny, but so dope. I love it that. So cute. It's so cute. You know, part of, part of the impetus of this podcast is reflecting on two things. One, how the South has the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Truly. And elevating the voices of Black leaders and reproductive justice, which is you. Um, it's you. And also, like, reflecting on, it's been almost a year since the mm-hmm. Dobbs decision. Um, and I I think it's interesting to, I, I would love to know for you, what has shifted right. in time and how have you been living with that both as both personally and as a leader for LAF, Louisiana Abortion Fund? Mm. Hmm. So when, when Roe fell, my first, I got the news whenever I was driving through Mississippi. I, I think I was on my way home from who knows what child. I don't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so I don't know where I was going. Going from a gig. And we, my partner and I pulled over uh, off the highway. We were at the Mississippi River, um, like, look off in, in Vicksburg. I remember just looking at the, the water and just being like, okay, all right, we're here, you know. And then also within that same voice, I was like, we've already been here and now other people are going to experience this too now. And I, I hate that for them. 
you know, like, uh, I, uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was a really surreal moment. And then my third thought, um, you know, for myself after I was, we were obviously in communication and, and chastity and the team did an amazing job of like, here's what we do in anticipation of this. Like there was already structure set up for how we would respond to this, how we would build in rest, right. How we would tend to ourselves internally. Um, if, when, you know, it, it, it happened. Uh, and to be fair, like a lot of reproductive justice leaders had been saying like, they're coming for row y'all they're coming for row. Um, you know, not as, not as prophecy, but it's a, this is the thing. Like a lot of people say like Octavia Butler's prophetic. A lot of people say like black women are prophetic, black folks be prophetic. Like we're just looking at the conditions and saying A plus B equals C. This is probably what the outcome is, you know, and <laughs> fuck around, find out, you know what I mean? Like, and so like, what do we do to stop that? Right. And instead of a lot of people's response to be, to that, um, that information or to that uh, uh, assessment is like gaslighting the person that said it instead of saying like, okay, actually let's see what you're talking about. Right. So anyway, on the river, I was like processing all this. And my third thought was, I just, I don't want to feel the weight of my body, you know? Um, And so I got like, I think I just, we don't have a pool here. So booked a hotel in Memphis and I was like okay me and two of my best friends were just gonna go and have a day and just sit in the pool and just float you know um and there's something in, in all of these ways the water has carried me and held me you know what I mean um and I'm not quite I haven't quite put it all together yet but there's something there you know I think there's some deep ancestral knowledge about how the water will carry us. We will be carried, you know? Um, and so I keep coming back to that into ritual as a way to deal with the violence uh, that we're, that we're seeing. Um, and so in terms of things that have shifted for me personally, like I, I, have to temper I have to really tap into leading with compassion because when a lot of people who have not been aware of the landscape are now suddenly aware it's like whenever you know when people are aware of uh, the violence that we experience right um through, uh, you know, after Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd's passing and, and how people were able to to come together over that, like, there's this, how do I put this? I have to remember that I have to lead with compassion, even though other people's willful ignorance is now being removed, you know? That's, that's the tricky part. That's, I think that's what shifted for me is like, and I'm witnessing other people witnessing the violence that people have already been experienced. 
and have to show up with compassion. You know, that's hard. Who faith? <laughs> that's hard. And also that's what I'm being asked to do right now. You know, so I do have to put away some of my saltiness and I do have to put away some of my like angst and, um, you know, bitterness, you know, and I have to look for uh, the sweetness in myself, you know, mm. that's, I think that's what shifted is, you know, energetically, I am very, I'm like vigilant about cultivating my soft and safe spaces. I don't play with that shit like because it is so much more important right now um you know within the organization we kind of already you know we have been listening to to what reproductive justice leaders have said before right and so structurally we were like being we were able to adapt and pivot um because we had listened to the to the reckoning you know, um, so, you know, in terms of, in material terms, yes, we need more money, right? Because it, people's abortions are costing more money because they have to spend more money to leave the state. Um, on paper, that's facts. Facts is facts. Um, there is a dread, right? There is a dread in your belly, in my belly, you know, like, of knowing who's being harmed by this and knowing that we won't see the, the full repercussions for this. For you know, we won't fully understand it until it's like, whoa, you know, uh, we're already seeing, you know, higher maternal and infant mortality rates um, in Louisiana. And it's terrifying, right? And in the face of that, it is even more important that we make, that we are in tight community with the birthing folks, right? That we are in tight community with um, with our queer and trans, like trans and non-binary and queer-led groups. Like it is more important that we are able to tap into each other and to move. You know, Adrian Marie Brown talks about this, like be like water, right? Like we can shift and we can adapt. We can, um, we can quickly communicate danger and be able to move ourselves around it. And within that structure, right, be able to build new realities. Um, and that's really heartening for me. Um, it, yeah. Getting more press requests and like having to respond to which, you know, press requests can be a loaded thing because a lot of people want to project their story instead of listening, you know, which is why, you know, like, and it's, you know, people project like the horrors that are happening instead of like, actually listen to our victories, actually listen, you know, as I keep coming back to Lucille Clifton, like, I'm celebrate with me every day something has tried to kill me and has failed you know like we get to stand in our victories and when we get to hold them and um i'm just fiercely protective of that in ways that i wasn't before row you know yeah oh 
Uh, and why does the South have the answers? You're kind of like, t you're touching on it, but more directly, I think, um, well, I, I just feel like I see a lot of people write off the South, like completely. And especially folks who are like, I'm an expert and I, I know how this should go. And this is how you advance and progress. And I'm like, have we done it yet? Then seem like you don't know. Period. <laughs> Seem like we all just trying to figure out how to get there. <laughs> all right, you're an expert. Go ahead. Um, right. But I, I, I really want to lift up the wisdom of the South. And and what are your thoughts about that? About like why it's important to listen to the voices of people in the South. One, we sound good. You know, I love it. First of all. <laughs> First of all, it sounds fun. It sounds fun. Yeah, there is mm, there is something to the voice, right? There is something to how the sound moves in our body different. You know what I mean? I I can't put my finger on it, but there's something there's something there. There's an honesty there. There's a playfulness there. There's a resilience there, you know, in just how sound is moving through our bodies, right? Um, we are in relationship to land in a very different way here, right? Um, and what may not be intellectualized, we are experiencing it and we have already created in the process of creating solutions and like, and um, it's like anti-venoms. I don't know what is the antidote, <laughs> antidotes for, you know? Um, yeah, I think I'm thinking of land just because I'm sitting here looking at my porch and I'm like, this land is complicated, you know? And yet it is so rich and so fertile and I'm able to communicate um, with the kind of inherent knowledge here even if I'm not able to put it into words all the time. I just put it into practice. I just do it, you know? Like, that's like, <laughs> are you learning from, you know, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here looking at the elder flowers in bloom, you know what I mean? And how, how this thing that could be poison can also make us medicine right like the wood of an elder flower like i think the leaves and the roots like you're not supposed to eat they can they can kill you you know <laughs> but the flowers are really pleasant and can be medicinal and give you this lightness and you know soon those those flowers will fade and become elderberries and and bolster our immune systems when we need them you know in, in the fall um, going into winter right so like i'm learning from my relationship with the land and the people here and I'm just putting that into practice and if I'm able to do that as daughter of an immigrant black Filipino woman queer thriving in the south that says something mm. right um, so we are in relationship to land here in a very different way um in a very unique, in a very rich way. And 
we I think because we are held by the land here and also held by the land and also like it can be scary, right? Mm -hmm. It's scary. It'd be very, very scary here. Uh, You know, we're, we're alive and we're making beautiful things. Why would you not want to come listen to the people that are alive and making beautiful things? (laughs) That would be stupid. (laughs) Well, let me see what these people got to say. <laughs> that just that sounds like they're having a good time over here. Yeah, they're making it work. <laughs> they figured out how to have a good time. So maybe I should just tap into that. You know? Yeah, right. Instead of this kind of, I'm the expert. Like, we are all experts in our own survival. You know, that I can say with full confidence. Everyone that I know, even people I don't agree with, even people that, you know, we might be buttonheads like they are experts in their own survival here Mm. Mm. you know and how can we learn from each other and how can we adapt and grow together here you know so even you know even I was actually just talking with some friends about their family um and how yeah a lot of like progressive white folks here are really struggling with their ties to their families um, that are, you know, flirting with fascism um, and how to hold that, you know. Uh, and I don't have the answer for that. And I also know that, like, there are conditions where even, yeah, how do I put this? it's just a it's a very paradoxical place right like on one hand i can drive down the road and like i'm seeing a confederate flag and i'm like okay that's a signal i don't go there obviously it's like (laughs) not for me and you know i can also drive down the road and there's a lesbian owned bookstore and like on my friend's block it's basically like all queer folks living in a small town in North Mississippi, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yet yeah, both of these things exist. And we, I think we have the capacity here to hold these paradoxes, um, not necessarily without judgment, but with, with space for curiosity. And within that curiosity is the answer, right? Is how we find the solution. I like that. Within that curiosity is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just the other day I was uh, going to see my, I have a post office, a post office box here because I don't have an address. <laughs> and, uh, and this woman was saying, she was saying, well, why? There was someone that was recently arrested um, for a very minor traffic violation who was undocumented um, and had been here since she was like five. And so just found out about this um, through a conversation that my post office lady was having with another woman. And the post office lady was like, well, why can't she just get citizenship? She should just be able to stay here, right? And I was like, Right. There's that curiosity. It's a little, it's a little, it's a little less than curiosity. It's a little judgy, but it's also, okay, there's a question there. And I said, well, like, 
you know, my, my friends that have, you know, married folks that have immigrated here, it took forever for them to get their green card, you know, and like, the process isn't that simple, you know, to become a citizen here, and it's not fair. And she was like, huh. Well, thank you for explaining that to me, you know, because she had had a conversation with this woman and the woman was like kind of really rattling off and like, this is, this is, this is that. And she's like, I didn't understand what she was saying. She was talking too fast, you know, and she was like very um, wound up and it was hard for me to receive that information. Right. And because she was able to approach me with curiosity and because I was able to approach her with curiosity too, she was able to have a shift in her understanding like wow that's cool (laughs) yeah I love that like just like that ability to be open and just connect with someone let me talk to you (laughs) like I don't know girl like (laughs) that makes me think and this is my last like podcast question but it makes me think about the block party I just would love like your kind of insight on like, why do you think, why do you think it was important for laugh to have a block party? Like that is kind of unique in itself, right? Like a reproductive justice. Yeah. Buy you black, buy you block party. Like what? Uh, I, you know, what? I love Tyler so much. Um, and so much of the block party, like, I think embodied their experience, which in turn embodied so many of our shared experiences collectively. Um, but actually, the idea was brought up at a board meeting, and they were like, what if we had a block party? And this is, you know, this, well, this is after a meeting, and we were having a cocktail, and I was like, sure. <laughs> Let's do it, you know? And Because when she said, uh, you know, and they said block party, I was like, oh, like a family reunion, you know, like an electric slide, like barbecue, crawfish boil. You're like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And it was important that we that we have an event that was rooted in joy, you know, and just showed and, and brought our experiences to a shared space. You know, like making it a family affair was very important because we are a reproductive justice organization so people can bring their kids and you know they can get a bite and do what they need to do and also like pick up some emergency contraception like find out about uh you know the doula services that are available through birthmark um you know connect with with reject connect with lcrf um and for those listening reject is reproductive justice action coalition they're an amazing group and Louisiana Coalition of Reproductive Freedoms is LCRF and Birthmark. Uh, it's an amazing collective, Black-led doula collective in New Orleans. Um, okay. Sorry, the hummingbirds are tripping. Uh, uh, it was important because we needed to do something that felt good in a, in a time when a lot of things don't feel good. You know, a lot of things don't feel good. And so being able to center joy is how we is how we continue, is how we stay resilient, you know. Um, 
and again, like creating these spaces of play and creativity are how we get to solutions, right? When Tyler was like, let's have a block party. I'm like, I love party. Let's do it. (laughs) And we, in that moment, created a space where like, you know, black elders could come up and feel comfortable and like be tended to and taken care of. Folks from like all facets of the LGBTQIA family could come and feel safe and protected. Kids, people's kids could run around. There was one point when I remember just like, you know, seeing one board member and seeing their child run this way. And like, I knew at any point in time, there are like four sets of eyes on this child. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't, you know, we're still building our relationships within the board because we're bringing in new people. Like, I haven't spent that much time with this person you know, and yet I'm watching this child, you know, this child is safe and this child has all his needs tended to, you know, uh, all her needs tended to. And being able to live the vision that we see in real time is proof that yes, within our lifetime, this is possible, you know. And and it's complicated, right? Because events are crazy. Like there's all, there's, even with everything going the right way, you know, there's always room for improvement. There's always ways that we can expand and, and make things better. So seeing like not only can we achieve what from an outsider's perspective might seem impossible, we're going to do it well, it's going to be fun, and we'll be able to improve it. You know, like, come on, like, that sounds great. <laughs> I already know that next year I want to let you slide because that did not happen. oh my god right <laughs> or maybe it happened while I was running around but I was like oh my god that would have been so amazing oh my god oh wait I have a video of you and Camille dancing I need to send it to you I need it was so I was like oh and this is the bliss that I can experience in this life like uh just seeing yeah people people feeling free and embodying that freedom you know um just just incredible work there's uh mama jen from the bookstore came over and like wrote us a check for you know for like donation there was such power in that moment there was such power in that moment to be blessed by this leader of the community um and she said something she said like those people that were used to protest at the clinic and all these people that are trying to take away our rights I just want to kick their ass you know that's exactly what she said I just want to whoop their ass and I was like me too girl (laughs) and she handed over that check and I was like this is actually how you whoop their ass like this is how you show them like we put our resources together and like this this donation will not only take care of the people that we're helping but take care of us as we're helping these people Mm -hmm. like we are taking care of each other you know there's I find that in a lot of like white charity spaces, there is this fixation on like, where's every penny being spent? Is it going directly to the people? And I'm like, we all got to have infrastructure for things. We have to have infrastructure. We have to be able to take care of the people that are taking care of the people or, or ain't nobody getting taken care of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just asked out, you know, like, (laughs) Yes, like truly mutual aid, truly. And, and the way that, that Mama Jen came over and she was like, and this, and I know y'all got this, like, 
this is my blessing. This is my prayer. This is my, you know, this is my way of pushing back. Um, and that is the beauty of mutual aid is that not only are we helping people, but the folks that are able to show up are able to show up with whatever they have. And it is put to good use and done so with dignity and, res and mutual respect. You know, that's the difference. I love that moment. I want to kick their ass. I was like, yes, child, me too. If I ever see certain folks in these streets, I ain't the last word, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm AJ Haynes, <laughs> period. Yes, yes. Ah. Uh. Oh my God. Well, this has been so fulfilling to my soul just to talk Me to you. Me too. And those birds, because those birds have stuff to say to you. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Aren't they funny? They're so funny. They're like, I agree. I agree. I agree. Those little hummingbirds, they'll zip up and they'll be like, over here, they're little playful things. Special thanks to our amazing guest, AJ Haynes. This has been The South Has the Answers, a Joy Channel production for Louisiana Abortion Fund. To donate to Louisiana Abortion Fund, hit up louisianaabortionfund.org. Thank you to Red Cypress Consulting for visuals and especially Camille Moran for all your support. I'm your host and executive producer, Luna Malbro, the Chief Vibe Officer of Joy Channel. Can't let you go without giving another special thanks to Viseratones for the show's groovy theme song, Get Free. I'll let you listen to that right now. Please follow them wherever you get your music. Bye. You better say what you mean. Okay, kinfolk.